Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is the word of God. All right, good afternoon. Uh, is that introduction going to be, or has it been recorded? So what I'm going to do is every time I feel discouraged, I'm going to go and look at that and listen to that prayer. Thank you, thank you. That was, uh, okay, very, very kind, very kind. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to be concentrating on one verse today. It is Hebrews 1, 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, this is a word-for-word -word quotation from Psalm 45.7. Psalm 45.7 is a psalm by the sons of Korah. Now, that in and of itself is interesting, seeing as how... Korah was rotten to the Korah, and he was swallowed up by planet Earth because of his rebellion against Moses. We read about that in Numbers 16, but he has some descendants here, and they are authors of Scripture, and that really demonstrates the kindness and the love and the mercy of God. But not only are they authors of Scripture, but here's the key feature for today— they are authors of scripture which pen a messianic psalm. A messianic psalm is one in which it predicts or prophesies the details concerning the coming Messiah. That's Psalm 45. And so now the author of the book of Hebrews is familiar with Psalm 45. And what the author of Hebrews does is he uses Psalm 45 in order to build part of his argument which says that Jesus is greater or Jesus is better than angels. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, there are seven Old Testament quotes which speak to the fact that Jesus is better than angels. For our purposes today, we're only going to be looking at that one verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, uh, but understand that chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 go together. And I'm going to read it again, but as I read it this time, I want you to be looking out for the fact that Jesus Christ is the supreme king. There's a lot of language here about his royalty. There is a, there is a scepter here and a throne. And the other thing that I want you to see is that the reason why God anoints his son, Jesus Christ, is not because of his power or his might or his majesty, but it is because of his holiness. So again, let me read these verses and see if you can pick out those two things. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Today, what I'm going to be doing is talking to you on the subject of loving righteousness and hating wickedness, specifically how we as Christians uh, can grow in holiness. Uh, but before we do that, let's humble ourselves before God one more time and pray. Lord, we want to acknowledge that today we do not, uh, left to ourselves, we do not love righteousness. Lord, we love sin. And Lord, left to ourselves, we want to confess before you that we do not have any innate hatred for wickedness. Uh, rather, Lord, we are quite comfortable with it. And I would just ask God today, please, that you would change us uh, from who we are by nature and Lord, by your Spirit, conform us into the image of your dear Son so that we might think as he thinks and feel as he feels. Lord, may I present the word today in a way that is understandable, but Lord, more than the people understanding today, I pray in Jesus' name that we would leave this place today resolved 
to love righteousness and to hate wickedness. Lord, would you please assist us in doing that, enable us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, exegetically, I want to be very clear here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9 uh, is not instructing us to love righteousness and to hate wickedness. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9 is not instructing us at all. It is not an imperative. It is an indicative. It is not talking about you or me. It is not talking to you or me. It is describing Jesus. The psalmist is writing to the Christ. And he's saying to the Christ, you have loved righteousness and you have hated wickedness. And so this is foundational before we consider how we live our lives and what we love and what we hate to consider what Jesus is like. Fundamentally, and using proper hermeneutics, reading the text today, we have to say, along with the sons of Korah, Jesus Christ, we praise you because you are a lover of righteousness. And you have demonstrated your love for righteousness in that you have completely and accurately and thoroughly fulfilled the law of God. Your father said to you, this is my beloved son in whom I am, am well pleased. And Jesus, we praise your righteousness. You have proved that you love righteousness in that you have resisted every sin that came your way and resisted that temptation. He who was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. And Jesus, your nature is a righteous nature. Merry Christmas, Jesus. When you came into this world, you are different than we are. You were born of a virgin. You are righteous by nature. And Jesus, John 28, praise you. You always did those things which pleased the Father. You loved righteousness. And Jesus, when you were speaking to the John the Baptist, you summed it all up in Matthew 3, 17, when you said concerning your baptism, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus, we acknowledge you're a lover of righteousness. But Jesus, we also want to acknowledge that you hate wickedness. Jesus, you made this clear when you cast Lucifer out of heaven. And you made it clear when you cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And you made it clear when you flooded the world and left only eight people living. And you made it clear when you commanded the ground to swallow up Korah, the ancestor of the people who wrote this psalm. And you made it clear twice when you walked into the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. And you made it clear when you created a hell to punish the wicked, and most of all, Jesus, you have proved that you are a hater of wickedness when you in actuality have cast people into hell. Jesus, you've demonstrated clearly your love for good and your disdain for evil. Now let's talk about emotions. We as image bearers of God understand these words, love and hate. Everybody knows what that means. I, if I were to give you a glossary for the text today, a mini dictionary, love means love, hate means hate, righteousness means doing what is right, wickedness means doing what is bad. It, this is not that complex in terms of its parts. We think about love, we think about hatred, we can relate to it. However, because we are fallen and finite, our emotions are muted and they are also distorted. But when Jesus loves, he loves thoroughly and completely and deeply and perfectly. And when Jesus hates, he hates righteously and thoroughly and deeply. And so Jesus has a capacity for love and hatred which exceeds ours. In fact, we can't even imagine his capacity for these things. His love is aimed at righteousness. His hatred is focused on wickedness. Now this is more than just saying that Jesus was obedient to the Father's will. Let there be no mistake, Jesus was obedient to the Father's will and thus he became a perfect sacrifice so that he could be our substitute and die in our place. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. But it is much more than that that is being said here. Because what is being reflected in this text are his emotions and his feelings, love and hate. 
Jesus not only did the right thing, but he was invested, he was engaged, he was into it, he was not going through the motions. You know, so often with my own obedience, the reason why I will obey is because I know that it is the right thing to do. Remember Peter in the boat? Dawn is breaking, Jesus is on the shore, and Jesus says, Peter, take the net, throw it over onto the other side of the boat. And Peter says, Lord, I'm a fisherman by trade. We have toiled all night. We haven't caught anything. Nevertheless, at thy command. I don't really want to do it. I don't even see the good in it, but I'm going to throw it onto the other side of the boat. Well, many times when I obey, it's not because I have a love for righteousness. It's just because I'm told that that's the right thing to do. And sometimes I will reject sin, like I will see sin that is in front of me. I will want to engage in that sin, but I will refrain from engaging that sin, not because I am a hater of sin, just because this is what the Lord has told me to do. But Jesus never operated like that. A.W. Pink puts it this way, herein we perceive his uniqueness. How often our obedience is a reluctant one. How often God's will crosses ours, and when our response is an obedient one, frequently it is joyless and unwilling. Different far was it with the Lord Jesus. He not only performed righteousness, but he loved it. End quote, and hallelujah, what a savior. You see, we are supposed to love righteousness. We are supposed to hate wickedness. But you and I know that our heart isn't always there. And so as we are looking at this passage, this is not talking to us about us. This is talking to Jesus about his perfections. And not only is he perfect in the days of his flesh, but he remains perfect today. Hebrews 13, 8, for Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If Jesus was mad when he walked into the temple and he saw the money changers, he remains mad today when his house is turned into a house of merchandise. Jesus always hates sin. Jesus always loves righteousness. Now, why in the world do I belabor this point? Well, let me see if I can explain it. Jesus is to be praised. He is to be glorified. Because in his innermost being, he was sincere and genuine. And that which he did was heartfelt. It was his delight to do so. You need to know that about him. And so once that is established in our minds, then we can move on making the connection between Jesus and ourselves. What is the connection between the righteousness of Jesus Christ and us with respect to us loving righteousness and hating wickedness? Well, first of all, we ought to love righteousness and hate wickedness simply because we are commanded to do so. We are not commanded to do so in Hebrews 1.9, but we are commanded to do so in Amos chapter 5, verse 15, where it simply says, hate evil and love good. Hate evil and love good. But there is a deeper a more foundational reason as to why or how we are to hate evil and love good. And this, I think, is the key to motivating us to moving in that direction. And it comes from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, where John writes, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, if you say that you're a Christian, what you ought to do is to be a follower of Christ and you ought to walk in the way that Christ walked. And therefore, if Jesus loved righteousness and if Jesus hated wickedness, then I should too. Now, before I move on, let me take a brief excursus concerning our standing before God with respect to the gospel, which is of first importance. And that is that we do not become Christians by doing righteous things, and we do not become right in the sight of God by hating wicked things. We become a Christian by realizing that we cannot do that. 
and then realizing that Jesus did do that and believing that he perfectly lived in my place and the perfect life which he lives, he offers me now to be put onto my record. Let me see if I can clarify this. Here is righteous living. That is, obeying the Lord, doing what he says, even doing it with a good attitude, righteousness expressed in the way that we live our lives. That is not going to help you in any way because Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You stand before the judgment bar of God. You've been as good as you can possibly be. It is of no value whatsoever. On the other hand, there is a righteousness over here, and this is what we like to call the righteousness of Christ or imputed righteousness or the smart guys, the theologians, they call it an alien righteousness. It's not called an alien righteousness because we get it from E.T. It is an alien righteousness in that it is not something which we innately have or experience. And this is Jesus coming into the world, living perfectly, completely fulfilling the law, of God and pleasing the Father, and then his entire record is placed on our record, and when we stand before God to be judged, God is not looking at the way that we lived our lives, at our righteousness, but he is looking 100% at what Jesus has done, which has been given to us. And in turn, I've got sins that I've got to get rid of. I don't get rid of those sins by hating those sins. I get rid of those sins because this man over here in my place went to the cross and for six hours he hung on that cross and he bore the wrath of God in love. Jesus died for me with his blood and with his death. He washed away all of my sins. And so now as I stand before God, I'm holding a record, but the record that I'm holding says nothing whatsoever about me and myself, and what I have done, but it is all the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm trusting in that and that alone. So you have these two types of righteousness. I love this kind of righteousness, which is realized righteousness and living it out, but I love this righteousness over here more because in the judgment, it is this righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, that is going to get me into heaven, not what I myself have done. So I'm going to plead with you today to live righteously, but understand even if you do in some way live righteously, it's not going to get you into heaven. What will get you into heaven is faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. I hope we're clear on that, because if we're not, this is not going to be a helpful sermon. It is what Jesus has done for us, not what we do. I think you know that already. But even if you know that, because there are a lot of people that know that, and they can articulate the gospel uh, in our church, we find that when people come forward for membership interviews, we have to ask them their testimony, and they give their testimony, and then we say, upon what are you basing your life? Or if you were to stand before God right now, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? They give you a perfect answer. And we, as wise and discerning elders, will listen to their testimony, and if they can say, it's not my righteousness, but it's the righteousness of Christ, it's not what I've done, but that he died for me, well, then we let them become a member. And so there are a lot of people that intellectually understand that, but not everybody who can articulate the gospel actually belongs to Jesus Christ and is converted. But you have to believe that in order to be converted. But there's more to it than that. And so you say to yourself, how in the world do I know if I really belong to him, if it is more than just having an intellectual understanding of substitution? And the answer is that one of the ways that you can know whether or not Jesus is in your heart is if Jesus is in your heart. One of the ways that you can know that Jesus is in your heart is if Jesus is in your heart. You see, I can tell you today from the Bible that you are supposed to walk as he walked. And I can tell you to love righteousness and to hate doing bad. But what I cannot do, I would if I could. Honestly, I would. I love this church. I love those of you that I know. I love those of you that I don't know. I love. I would do this for you if I could. I would change your heart if I could. But I am not able to do that. You cannot change the heart of another person. 
When I'm looking out at you folks here today, I think by far I'm the oldest one in the room. There used to be this guy. His name was Barry Manilow. He used to sing songs back in the 70s. Does anybody remember him? Oh, wow, this is, this is a better church than I thought. All right, Barry Manilow. He had this song called Trying to Get the Feeling Again. Like, it's a very open and honest song. Like, he's, he's got this girlfriend, and now they're, now they're, they're, they're just, it, it's just not there anymore. And he's trying. He's trying really hard. Trying to get the feeling again. Well, sometimes we're trying to get the feeling again. Now, I'm not saying that Christians live their life by feelings. We live by faith and not by sight. I understand that sometimes we feel down. Sometimes we become depressed. We still have to battle the flesh. But I will say this. As a new creation in Christ, one of the things that has to be there is that there has to be some sort of a desire for righteousness and some sort of a hatred for sin. In other words, one of the ways that you know whether or not Jesus is in your heart is if Jesus is in your heart. And therefore, since you can't change your own heart, and since I can't change your heart, how do we develop the mind of Christ? And here's the answer. We develop it by going to God, who is the source, and receiving love. Love is from God. And if you're listening, and if you have a logical mind, and you've been following the sermon up to this point, you've been with me up to this point, you probably are saying to yourself, this makes no sense. It is too nebulous. He's just kind of throwing a cliche out there. Let me see if I can put some logic and some scripture behind what I am saying. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. And then he gives this, this phrase, For love is from God. The source of love is God. Now, to be fair, that passage in its proper context, is referring to our love for one another. But any love, even love for righteousness, must come from God. Love is from God. And even in the next verse, John says, for God is love. So if we are going to have a love for anything, if we're going, especially if we're going to have a love for righteousness, we have to receive that from God. That is the source. It's important that you know what your duties are. As a Christian, you have to know what you are allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do, what you're supposed to love and what you're supposed to hate. Let me say it again. You've got to know your duties. You've got to know the Word of God. You've got to know what the Lord commands in the Bible. But by simply knowing it, that doesn't help you to do it joyfully. What you need is God Himself. And the love that He gives... And specifically, the love that he gives us for righteousness. Because even as I said in my prayer, by nature, as unconverted people, not only do we sin and think about sin, but we actually enjoy sin. I'm, one of, I think, the greatest apologetic arguments for the truthfulness of Scripture is that it is the only document that explains what we are really like. I mean, what are the mathematical chances that every human being, and there's been a lot of human beings, that every human being has had a love for sin and a gravitational pull towards sin, and that there is no one who is righteous, not even one, except for Jesus Christ. I mean, what are the mathematical odds that everybody is a sinner? How in the world does that happen? The Bible is the place where that is written, but that's another sermon for another day. Left to ourselves, we love sin. And true righteousness for the glory of God is something that we by nature do not pursue nor do we desire. But here's what happens. 
God in his kindness brings the gospel to us, which is the power of God unto salvation, and there's a transformation which takes place in our hearts. Not only does our mind understand that he lived righteously for me and he died in my place, there's more than just that intellect, but there is a change in my affections. Whereas I used to love sin and I used to look at Christians and I used to say, these are the weirdest people that I have ever met. I mean, it's just like a, a sea of homeschool people. Like, it's just like, I do not want to be with them. And then something happens. We are converted, and the sin which we once loved and we once embraced, now it doesn't taste as good. It's bitter. And we try to go back into the sin, but we can't go back into the sin because something has happened to our heart. And these people, and maybe they even are genuinely weird, but these people who... I used to perceive as weird, and I didn't want to be around them. Not only do I want to be around them now, I want to be like them now. And they are my brothers and my sisters. How in the world did this happen? It happened because Jesus came into your heart. And the way that you can know whether or not Jesus is in your heart is if Jesus is in your heart. So the key... To walking like Jesus is to be close to Jesus so that your heart will be changed. I mean, brothers and sisters, I, I can stand up here and I can talk to you about ways in which you could pursue righteousness, but I really don't have to explain it if Jesus is in your heart. I mean, could you imagine going to a meal, sit down, and, and before every meal, someone in the family would say, now, family, we're about to eat. Let me explain how this works. You, you have what are known as taste buds, and when the food gets into your mouth, you will, you will experience a sensation. And you use a fork and you use a spoon, but you have to put it in your mouth. You have to chew it and swallow it. And then as you do this, you're going to receive nutrients and you're going to receive strength to continue in life. And in order to continue in life, you've got to eat the food. So I really want to try to, I just want to encourage you to eat the food. I, I admonish you to, to eat the food. No, no, <laughs> you sit down and you eat it and you eat it because you love it. Doing what you love comes effortlessly. And if you are close to Christ, then pursuing righteousness and hating wickedness will come effortlessly. I'm going to give you some instructions today on, in fact, I've got nine of them. I'm going to give you some instructions on practical things you can do to pursue righteousness. But listen to me and look at me. I, I got to say this. Those nine things that I am about to give you are going to be of no help to you whatsoever unless you are close to and clinging to the source, which is Christ himself. In fact, I would say that the nine things that I am about to give you will actually hurt you if you are not clinging to Christ. So the best part of the sermon is already over. What follows is just commentary. In fact, you don't even need the rest of the sermon if you're just clinging to Christ. Your heart will change. The way that you know that Jesus is in your heart is if Jesus is in your heart. And the reason that this is true is because he is the vine and we are the branches. John 15, 4 and 5. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. So, the source is love. Love comes from God. Love is expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. It is not a matter of knowing about Jesus, although you should know about Jesus, but it is a matter of actually knowing Jesus and knowing him well. That's how we move forward to love righteousness and hate wickedness. Assuming that that is you, I'm going to give you nine points right now. 
they're in no particular order. Maybe the ninth point is the best one, but other than that, they're not in any particular order. These things will be helpful to you if you really do have Jesus in your heart. Number one, please beware of the fact that you are living in an inverted world. You are living in a twisted world. You're living in a world where things are upside down, where evil is good and good is evil. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You do understand, as you go out into the world, that everything is turned upside down. Here's an example. President Joe Biden, President-elect Joe Biden said that on his first day of office, he will give transgender students access to sports and bathrooms and locker rooms in accordance with their gender identity in federal, federally funded schools. And he is applauded for this. So, so get the picture. You are a boy but you think you are a girl. Therefore, you can go into the girl's bathroom or the girl's locker room. When he puts this out, he is applauded as progressive and helpful to the education system when in reality it is warped and it is twisted and it is wrong. And if you stand up and you say, a man is a man and a woman is a woman, you are put down as being archaic and wrong. The world we live in celebrates sin and it mocks that which is wholesome. And so I just want to make you aware of this as you walk out into it and you're like, what? Well, like Alice in Wonderland, like where, where am I and what is going on? Nothing makes sense. Please understand the world that we now live in does not make sense. It is inverted, it is warped, it is upside down. Don't think that you are weird or wrong when you think things that are wholesome and good are actually wholesome and good because when you take that which is wholesome and good out into this society, you will be mocked but things which are actually warped and distorted will be applauded. The world's upside down. You just need to know, you need to know that the playing field is slanted. Number two, pray. Pray and ask God to change your affections. And when you pray, please be honest. You see, God is omniscient, so you cannot fool him. You cannot go before him and say, Lord, I love righteousness so much, and I hate wickedness so much, and, and, and it's like he is not fooled. What is a better prayer to pray is what David prays in Psalm 51, verse 10. Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Lord, I am one of those men who love darkness rather than light. Lord, I know that I can't fool you. Lord, I know that I should love righteousness, but God, I'm being very honest with you right now. I am not gravitationally pulled toward righteousness. I, on the other hand, Lord, am attracted to sin. And God, I can't save myself. I can't change myself. Lord, I don't want to think this way. Oh, God, have mercy upon me. Create in me a clean heart. Going before God and sincerely praying, Lord, I want you to rule my heart, but I have to be honest with you right now. My heart's in a bad place. Number three, strive to be ignorant about sin. And when I say sin, I don't mean the doctrine of sin, a martyology. I'm talking about actualized sin. Try to be as ignorant of it as you possibly can be. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, but be infants in evil. Be infants in evil. Be infants in evil. How do I become an infant in evil? The answer is by allowing your mind 
to reject or to be entertained by sin. In order to do this, you're going to have to commit social suicide. You're going to have to willing, be willing to be ostracized. You're going to have to be the one person in the room that doesn't know the lyrics to that song. You're going to have to be the one person in the room that is not familiar with that television program or with that social media outlet. I, I had heard of TikTok. Uh, I, I mean, I know I, I, I live in a cave, but we have electricity in the cave. Uh, I had heard of it. I wasn't really sure what it was. And an incident came up in our church where the elders needed to see something that was going on on TikTok with one of our members. And so a TikTok video was sent to me and I saw it for the first time. And as I, I looked at it, I was sort of in shock, not in shock about the sin. I mean, for crying out loud, I was raised in a locker room. I, I understand what sin is. I have a wicked heart myself, but the accessibility of sin to our young people on this outlet called TikTok, and then not really sure how I'm like navigating through what's there. It takes you like to other videos, and I'm looking at the next video and the next video, and finally I have to stop. And the reason that I have to stop is because of the vulgarity in this. And so as I forward it to the other elders, I say, please look at the first one because it, it, it involves one of the members of our church, but please do not click on to anything else. And I put it in all caps and bold, do not forward beyond this because it will not do your soul any good. If you actually have a desire in your soul to be a lover of righteousness and a hater of wickedness, this will not be something which you have accessible for yourself or for your family. I mean, let's consider what Paul says. Romans 13, 14, do not make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And let's remember what Jesus says. He says you need to take out a hacksaw and cut off your right hand. You need to get a sharp stick and you need to poke out your right eye. And remember what Paul says in Romans 12, 9, abhor or hate what is evil and hold fast or cling to what is good. Now again, this point assumes that you actually desire to be holy. And if holiness is your priority, then you don't mind committing social suicide. You don't care whether or not you get invited to the reindeer games. But if you are of the world and living for the world, then it will be very hard for you to give up the things of the world. And if you are addicted to being exposed to and familiar with and conversant with the coolest and the latest, ultimately what's going to happen, even if you do not participate in those things, although you probably will participate in those things, but even if you don't, you will never develop an appetite for the joys of heaven. You cannot live in the world and still have a taste for the joys of heaven. And so what you need to do is you need to try to be intentionally ignorant of sin. Number four, please beware that most of what passes for humor is hated by Jesus. Most of what passes for humor is hated by Jesus. And you say, well, Jesus really is a killjoy. He doesn't like laughter. No, even our verse for today, the verse which says that the oil of gladness by God is placed on Jesus above all others. You know what that means in layman's terms? It means that Jesus is happier than anyone. At the right hand of the Father, there are joys forevermore. At God's right hand, there is the fullness of joy. Psalm 16, verse 11. Jesus is happier than anyone. Jesus is not opposed to joy. And Jesus is not opposed to laughter and a light heart. Proverbs 17, 22, A joyful heart is good medicine. However, there is a difference between humor which is good-spirited and clean and vulgarity. And I just want to say 
that most of the humor that gets passed around in our society is based upon and propelled by sin. And Jesus is not laughing. Not only is he not laughing, but he hates it because it was that sin which sent him to the cross, and it is that sin which is actually sending people to hell. There's nothing to laugh about. Many years ago, I think like 30 years ago, I was a youth pastor, and we were at, uh, at youth camp. And uh, for those of you who have been to youth camp with me, you know that one of the things which we are required to do is to make the students laugh and to have a good time. And I am not opposed to that. I myself am not funny, but I try to be funny and I don't see anything wrong with that. But about 30 years ago, we were in youth camp and after our skits for the evening, there was another youth pastor from another church who came up to me and he was weeping, like tears were running down his face. And he said, do you realize that every skit we did tonight was based upon and was made funny because of sin. He was right. We were preaching the word of God to the students, telling them to love righteousness and hate sin, but yet that which we were modeling in front of them was a frivolity or a looseness with respect to sin. No, Jesus hates it. Ephesians 5, 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Here's your assignment for this week. Keep a mental log. Go throughout the week and note every time that someone is trying to be funny. Whether it's someone at work or someone at school or something on the television, where there is an attempt at humor. I'm not going to ask you to evaluate the quality of the humor. I'm just going to ask you to evaluate the, the attempt. Ask yourself the question, what is it that I am supposed to be laughing at right now? And you will find that most of what is called humor will be propelled by or grounded in sin. Number five, keep good company. If you surround yourself with good, godly, mature people, you will start to become like them. Why in the world is it that within families, usually they share values and interest and an accent and mannerisms of their fellow family members? It is simply because we become like those that we are around. So... There are six original Moors. All of us are Mets fans. Why are they Mets fans? It's because that's what they lived in and among. That's what they were exposed to. My wife was raised an Atlanta Brave fan, and I converted her. Why did she become a Mets fan instead of being a Braves fan? Because she's going to get something better with the Mets? No, not at all. No, no, her life is now forever infected and miserable, regardless of who our owner is. It is, it is, it is, a, it is a, a horrible life of losing, being a Mets fan, and this is just like another sermon for another day, but, but you ought to be a Mets fan, because being a Mets fan really resembles real life, okay? It's, that's just man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. But again, another sermon for another day. She is a Mets fan, because she lived in the midst of Mets fans. Likewise, you are going to become like the people that you associate with. If you have friends that are not saved, you may try, and I, 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 I'll give you this, You're probably your desire is for you to help them up, but in reality, they are going to pull you down. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, I'm not saying you should be unfriendly to anyone. In order to be salt, in order to be light, in order to be an evangelist, you have to be friendly. You have to have loose acquaintances with people for evangelistic purposes and to spread the love of God. Amen. But when it comes to friendship, when it comes to influence, Psalm 1-1 takes the day. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
So I would ask that you evaluate your circle of friends and ask yourself, do these people contribute to my sanctification? And quite simply, if they do not, then you should distance yourself from them. And I know that this sounds radical, but again, if you are not in the first place clinging to Christ, wanting to love righteousness, wanting to hate wickedness, then this all sounds very bizarre. But if you really do love Christ and you want to become more like Christ, then you will hear the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount who said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You'll pay any price in order to be righteous. Number six. I almost left this point out, so I'll go through it quickly, but I still think it's a helpful point. And that is verbally cheer for righteousness and verbally boo wickedness. Not literally. I'm not saying when you see something righteous that you literally applaud or that you boo. But what I am saying is use your lips in order to make a commentary on the world. And when you see something that is a delight to the Lord, say something. Acknowledge it. I have a man in our church who every morning he sends me a text. And this text comes in the form of a poem and a scripture verse at the bottom. It's a short poem and a scripture verse in the, in, at the bottom. Every day he sends one. And it is either something about how great God is in creation and nature or providence or the sacrifice of Christ or the love of God. Something like that. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He must love righteousness because he talks about it all the time. I would say the way that we can encourage one another in the church is if we begin to talk about righteousness as if it were a good thing and if we were to be putting reminders in one another's ears when there is an observation of wickedness not in a judgmental way, and certainly not in a way that would embarrass anyone, but just to make it known, that's not good. When I was raising my children, we'd be walking along, we'd be out in public, and I, I, I couldn't make a speech at the time, but when I would observe something that was a behavior from other children, which I did not want my children to duplicate, I would just whisper and I would say, do you see them over there? I don't ever want you to do that. Speak about that which is wicked and call it what it is. Speak about what is good and call it what it is. You say, well, I mean, that's very judgmental. No, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Has it ever happened to you that, that, that you've seen something and there was kind of a check in your spirit? Like, that, that just isn't quite right. Or that, that is categorically sinful. And everybody else is seeing it, but nobody is saying anything about it. And then someone says, I feel very uneasy about that. And you say, oh, thank you for saying that. I felt the same way. And what you have done by acknowledging that is you have confirmed in my heart that I was going down the wrong path. Number seven, meditate on God's word. It's good to read God's word, amen, but there's something entirely different about meditating upon God's word. I heard a lecture recently about John Owen and the Puritans, and it said that the Puritans lived so slowly that they had time to think deeply about God. So reading large portions of Scripture, that is good. But the transforming power of the Scripture is to read slowly and to meditate. Psalm 1-2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Or the New Testament equivalent of that, that is, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Psalm 119, 174, O oh Lord, your law is my delight. You see, if you don't love the Bible, then you're not going to love righteousness, and you can't love Jesus unless you love righteousness. Number eight, I only have two more points. Number eight, 
Not that there's anything deep or complex about this sermon. This is just a very simple sermon, but, but this is probably the deepest of my points. And that is, think about what sin has done, what sin is doing, and what sin will do to you and to others. What caused the prodigal son to make his way in the direction of home? It was the realization that the way of the transgressor is hard, Proverbs 13, 15. Here I am. Friends are gone. My money's gone. My servants are eating better than For crying out loud, the pigs are eating better than me. This has not worked out very well. Think about what sin has cost you and will cost you and meditate on that. You see, Satan is crafty. He's always going to put a fresh coat of paint on sin and it will look good and for a short period of time it will be pleasurable. But one way to develop a hatred for that sin is to play it out. Where is this leading? What will it result in? What has it resulted in? And do it not only with respect to the future, but here's one way that you can really train your mind to hate sin. Think about it in terms of the past. So I don't know what you're thinking. You don't know what I'm thinking. A sin comes into your mind. You can think the most, you, you could be thinking the most sinful thought sitting here in church right now. Nobody, not even your spouse, would know that you are thinking it. Thought comes into your mind about sin, perhaps a sin in your past. When that happens, if you coddle it, if you nurse it, if you treat it as nostalgic, if you say, those were the good old days, and you somehow excuse it as, well, this is what it was like because I was young, or this is what it was like because I was unsaved at that time, but it sure was fun. I really would like to go back to Egypt. I'm not planning to go back to Egypt, but I really remember what that was like. Then what you're doing is you are developing or cultivating a love for sin, not a hatred of it. Rather, what ought to happen is when that sin comes into your mind, you need to think about the destructive force of it, and there needs to be a visceral, like, I want to vomit hatred of it. Look, when I'm in the middle of my sin, I'm not an idiot, I, I know what the Bible says. When I'm in the middle of my sin, I am not thinking about the consequences of my sin. All I am thinking about is myself. Shouldn't be doing this, but I am doing this. And then I come out of the sin, and then there's something that happens. There's this thought of, I shouldn't have done that. I'm never going to do that again. Yeah, right. Never going to do that again. That was bad. But as you move further and further away in time from the sin and you draw closer to the Lord, and then something happens that reminds you of that sin which was committed months or years ago, what will happen is the distaste for it will be greater than when you were actually in it at the time. And a good sign that you are actually on the right track is that when something blindsides you and reminds you of a sin that you used to commit, and when that is triggered in your mind, you say to yourself, Oh God, I cannot believe that I did that. Oh God, I am so sorry for that. Lord, I never want to go back to that. Think about the consequences of sin and do not treat it as a friend. My father was a very wise man and he would always point things out to me as I was growing up. And he would always say, Eddie boy, you, you, you pay attention to this. Notice that cigarette commercials are the best commercials in advertising. They always have the best scenery. They always have the most handsome or beautiful actors and actresses. They always have just like the best layout in the magazine. He says, you look at that picture right there, Eddie boy. This is back in the 60s. And he was right, cigarette commercials were really good. He said, never once will they show you someone dying of lung cancer. It's always going to be some handsome man standing in a meadow, smoking a Salem. 
Sin is not going to give you the end result. If it did, you would run from it. Sin is going to lie to you. So one way to become a hater of sin is to think about what it results in. Now here's my final point, number nine. How do I love righteousness and hate wickedness? The answer is practice righteousness. Do righteousness, and the more you do it, the more you will learn to love it. Back in the 1950s, there was a group called the Teddy Bears, and in 1958, they came out with a song that was called To Know, Know, Know Him is to Love, Love, Love Him. The more you know him, the more you're going to love him. I would say the same is true of Jesus Christ and righteousness. The more that you know him, the better that you will love him. You see, maybe, in part, the reason why we don't, do not do righteousness is because we have never experienced the joy that it brings. Hear me out on this. We're selfish people. We've got our own lives. We're trying to do what's best for us. That, that's, that's who we are in Adam. And these things are presented to us. Serve the church. Sacrifice. Reach out to people who are weak. Prepare meals for those who are in need. Give. Serve in the church. Attend a prayer meeting. Witness, show hospitality, extend yourself. And on the surface, you look at these things and you say, it doesn't seem that joyful to me. In fact, it seems bothersome or inconvenient or a burden. And I'm going to submit to you today the reason that perhaps the doing of righteousness seems burdensome to you is because you have never really tried it. I want to say to you, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the more that you actually do righteousness, you will discover that it is joyful. And it is more joyful than living for yourself. I do not know, personally, I'm sure that somebody exists. Okay, I have, I have officially worn out the bag. You know it's a long sermon when. <laughs> Don't miss this last point. James says, you not only need to hear the word, but you need to do the word. And then there's a verse at the end of that passage, which, which describes the reward. And he says in James 1.25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, here's the punchline, he will be blessed in his doing. This verse does not say that at the end of your service of being a doer, you will be blessed by God because he will reward you. But the Lord will reward you. But that's not what James is saying here. What James is saying here is that in the doing of the word... There is a reward in and of itself. There is a joy associated with righteousness. And you, as you pursue righteousness, are going to find in that pursuit that joy will come. And as joy comes, what you will want to do is you will want to be more righteous. And as you are more righteous, more joy will come. And as more joy comes, you will want to be more righteous. And God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I mean, if God... And remember at the beginning, I said one thing that I wanted you to see in the text is that the reason why God has anointed Jesus with the oil of gladness, the reason why Jesus has been rewarded with happiness more than any other person at the Father's right hand is because of his righteousness. Would it not stand to reason that a good and a consistent God would also likewise reward us if we were those who loved righteousness and who hated wickedness. And so I say to you in closing, draw near to Jesus. Remember about an hour ago, I told you the most important thing is that you draw close to Jesus. Attach yourself to the vine. Cling to him. And out of that, 
from the source of love that he provides. Take practical steps, practical steps to love righteousness and hate wickedness. Father in heaven, I thank you for the attentiveness of these people. Oh Lord, it's the, it's the middle of the afternoon and these people are listening so attentively. God bless this precious church. Oh God, bless this precious church and bless these precious people, Lord. God, would you please grant them a hatred for sin? Lord, would you bring revival to this place, a revival of righteousness? Lord, would you please stir within all of our hearts, Lord, the desire for a pursuit to please you? And then, Lord, would you give us the grace to carry it out? This we ask in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen.